You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. American Theater's podcasts are kindly supported by theater acoustics and digital design consultancy Charcoal Blue. Hi, I'm Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic. We're your token theater friends, people who love theater so much that we conducted an interview in an office with no air conditioning. How was that, Jose? Sweat. Yes, but I think you'll really enjoy it.、Uh, who did we talk to? We went to Greenwich House Theater to talk to the creators of Underground Railroad Games, Scott Shepard and Jennifer Kidwell. So we'll get to that in a, a little bit later. But first, we are going to talk about three shows that we've seen recently.、Mm-hmm. We're, we're starting with Macbeth at the Lucille Hotel Theater. Then we're going to talk about Blacks at MCC, and we're going to wrap up with Continuity at Manhattan Theater Club. I'm actually really excited to talk about the first show because I I I think this is like the the second all female Shakespeare I've ever seen, and I really liked it. I think they should just do Shakespeare with women from now on. We don't need men. So the first thing we're going to be talking about is Macbeth at Red Bull Theater Company.、Uh, Red Bull does、um, very well produced classics. And Erica Schmidt、uh, adapted and directed this production, and it's about an hour forty, and it takes place in an all girls teenage prep school, and it's a bunch of girls who gather in the fields after school to put on a production of Macbeth or. They read through it, and shit goes down. Like this is one of those times where I, I didn't read anything going into this, and so I was, and, and I've seen enough like conceptual Shakespeare to be like, okay, it's a bunch of girls, and we're probably never going to talk about how like it's all modern and everything. It's just girls doing Macbeth, and then when it turns, and and you realize like, oh, this actually was. A performance, and now the performance has gone like the Crucible style. It's really great and bloody, and I feel so sorry. I mean, all the actors did such a good job, but I felt so sad for them because, like, there's rain on stage and everyone's soaked, and I don't understand how no one is sick. And as Sophia Rob had pneumonia. She did. Yeah. Oh the, my God. The week I saw it, she was out a few performances because she had pneumonia. Because they get so wet in that show. And wait, so did you see her do it? Yes. Okay. Wasn't she? Um, I was so surprised. Um, Anna Sophia Rob played one of the witches, and she was in the Carrie Diaries, and so I so I had associated her with being like a teenage star, and she's really good in this. Yeah, everyone was really really、yeah. good in it. Because one of the things that the weekend I saw Macbeth, which is that's how it's stylized, like、mm-hmm. it separated Mac and Beth. So it's like more gender neutral. Because one of the、names. characters we learn her name's Beth, right? Is it the woman who's playing Macbeth? Do you remember? I don't remember whose names. Okay.、Like, yeah. But anyway, the weekend I saw Macbeth, I saw another Macbeth the night before. Which was done at the Japan Society, and it was、mm. a combination of anime, manga, 
and like Japanese theater and Macbeth. So, and then I learned that there was yet another Macbeth going down at the Clemente Center, which was told from the perspective of Lady Macbeth and the witches. So I'm sorry I missed that one. But my, my, my point about this is how wonderful it is that we're precisely not getting the same old Macbeth production. Because this is a show that's been done to death. Is it? It might be the most produced Shakespeare, I feel like. I have seen so many Macbeths. Uh, this is my second Macbeths. I've seen more Lears. You've seen more Lears? I've seen three Lears. Oh, God bless you. I know. Because I saw the Macbeth with Oof. Ethan Hawke. I saw the Macbeth that Alan Cumming did. Oh shit! Yeah, I've seen three Macbeths. I've seen. Oh, I forgot the Alan Cumming Macbeth because it was conceptual, but the only reason to see it was Alan Cumming. I've seen Naked Macbeth. I've seen Singing Macbeth. I've seen at least (laughs) nine Macbeths. But anyway, what I loved about this Macbeth specifically is what it does, highlighting gender roles in the play. Because we usually think of, well, not we, like society has trained us to think of women only as, you know, like delicate flowers and like helpless damsels in distress. And getting to see women, you know, female actors play actual Macbeth, not just Lady Macbeth, but actual Macbeth and Banquo and Macduff and everyone else just brings out, just it brought out this layer of the play that I had not even considered. And it's that line that's blurred between what the witches say at the top of the play, you know, foul is fair and fair is foul. And I was just so mind blown by everything that I thought about after that show. Because in the uh, program, the director also writes that she was inspired to write this adaptation after those did you read that? Yeah, the yeah. Slender Man's yeah. murder, yeah, yeah, which is so terrifying. And I'm going to share a really strange story with y'all. <laughs> story time, yes. story time. When I was in the sixth grade, we were learning about Greek mythology, and we were all assigned a god, right, mm-hmm. to, to learn about and to do like a presentation on. Mm-hmm. And one of our classmates was assigned Persephone. And we were all like 10 years old. And when she was assigned Persephone, she became convinced that she had become possessed by Persephone. Oh, so she good would, for her. Yeah. So she would go into this like trances during recess. Like she always, she was, now that I look back, she was very smart about it because she did it without adults around. Mm. So she, she just wanted to impress all the kids. And she would go into like trances and she would say that she was possessed by Persephone and that she had powers and stuff. And I hadn't thought about that in over 20 years. And this Macbeth made me think about that because it's about how this young women are reclaiming this roles and this violence and saying, you know, this is universal. This is not only the realm of men 
And yeah, like a lot of people were very shocked at how violent the play turned. And they were like, I can't believe girls did that. But I love that so much about it. Yeah, and I want to spoil the ending of the play, but I actually wasn't shocked about the violence. And I, I, I was shocked about the new resonances this play took for me because everyone, like everyone, knows that Lady Macbeth speech where she talks out about you know unsex and unsex me here and take the milk from my breast so that I can like go and kill these people. And I never really thought about that line so much because I just thought, oh, well, femininity, she thinks femininity is weak, and so therefore she needs to be genderless in order to, you know, kill people. But then watching this production, it made me realize that it wasn't so much that she wanted to be, to not have gender. It was she wanted to be a man. And what this production brought out for me was like the corrupting effect of, of toxic masculinity. And when you pretend to be, you know, typical men and to not cry and to just like unfeelingly like commit terrible things then everyone is screwed over and you know we're, we're always trained to like see Macbeth as like a tragic figure of, of like prophecy but then I actually found this production to like really bring out like the importance of feminine energy and bringing out the importance of not not defaulting to violence to solve our problems There's also a lot going on in the play that's unspoken, but it's obviously shown that speaks about the resourcefulness of young women. Like, for instance, they're all wearing this gray cape, but mm -hmm. inside the lining of the capes is tartan. So, you know, they turn with the cape, you see them transform into soldiers, into witches, into Scottish generals. And that was just so exciting. It made me think about that. I love the scene where the witches are working on their famous brew and they're pulling out all this like weird, dark ingredients from a backpack. And at one moment, it's one of the only times in the play when the girls break character mm -hmm. and one turns to the other and she's like, I think it's just pulling out like a dog's tongue or something gross yeah, like yeah. that. And something one, bloody in a plastic bag. And one goes to the other, where did you get that? And she's like, in the science lab. And they giggle. And it was like, it took me out, but it also brought me back in, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And it was just so smart. They're, they use, a, obviously, the uh, production designer, whose name I don't know right now. Uh, scenic designer is Catherine Cornell. So... Great job, Catherine. That set. Oh my God. Her work was incredible. And it's so, it's just so smart. It also brings you back to when you're a little kid and you're playing out in the woods and you imagine, you know, whatever you want. And you turn like a space that has nothing to do with another space and you transform it. And that was so exciting. And it spoke so much about, it made me think of that Good Friday play that we saw mm -hmm. a, a few months ago. There's also an all-female cast. I felt like in many ways, as a man, I was kind of like invading their privacy. And 
I, it was so interesting because it gave us access to a world that we don't necessarily have access to because it's mostly men writing these adaptations and directing them. Oh, yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought up, like, it's usually men who are given resources to direct classics and direct, like, big cast Shakespeare's, and different people should be able to do them because then you have more interesting perspectives on the material. I mean, just having a female director and having an all-female cast and a mostly female design team, like, I saw new things in this play that I've seen three times and I've known since I was in high school. That's a good thing. Different people should be able to do this. Yeah, and having seen nine Macbeths, I officially declare Isabel Furman my favorite Macbeth that I've ever seen. Ooh, and I'm sorry, Alan Cumming, but I think, yeah, is Mia Mendez has, is my favorite Lady Macbeth. Okay, um, Macbeth at Red Bull Theater Company is playing until June 9th, so run to see it or, you know, do your own all-female Lady Macbeth with a female director, please, and uh, tickets are 77 to $117. Okay, next up, speaking of ladies, we have Blacks by Aziza Barnes, currently running at MCC Theater. Um, if, if you ever remember Girls and Lena Dunham's Girls on HBO and how we were all complaining about how it was just a bunch of, about a bunch of white girls, but they did, but they didn't say it was a show about a bunch of white girls. They just said it was a show about a bunch of girls. And how we wished it was more diverse because it was set in New York City and New York City is diverse. Well, I feel like Blacks is an answer to that. And it was, it, this is one of those shows where I wish it was a TV show that I could watch while I was home in my pajamas. It's about three black female roommates living in Bushwick, and the identity is important because there's some social commentary in there as well. And they are having a really bad day, and they decide to go out to the club, and hilarity ensues. But also heartbreak. And heartbreak. The writing was, like, so fresh and fast, and and everyone was just so well drawn out and all flawed, but you also related to them. And it was kind of like, I had a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. One of the things that I really resented about the conversation surrounding this show is that it's being compared to girls. And I love girls, and I love Lena Dunham's work, except for Tiny Furniture, which I think is... Anyway. I don't love Lena Dunham's work, but we'll agree to disagree there. Yeah. But you brought up Lena Dunham. and Yeah, yeah, I did. And I wonder, you know, for people who... Why are we always comparing the work of people of color to the work of white people in the mainstream? Like, I am sure... Like, for instance, I saw this play with a person of color, with a, with a black woman, to be more specific, who has never watched Girls. So for her, this experience was not, you know, and she, like, Lena Dunham was the last thing in her mind. Mm-hmm. And I understand, obviously, why we need frames of reference to make things understandable and manageable. And, you know, otherwise the world would just be, like, impossible to navigate but I, I, I just wish there will come a day when we're not going to be comparing 
you know, something like blacks to something like girls. Although I, I can see why it's being compared to that. At the same time, though, I feel like people of color's works are usually compared to each other, even when it's not called for. Just because, like, it's like, oh, this black playwright's being produced in the same season as this other black playwright. We gotta compare them to each other or something. And so, I think it's more apt if it's if a work is using some like a similar thematic trope to con- compare it to things that other things that use a similar thematic trope. But why even Be- compare? Is my point. Because everyone needs a frame of reference. But, because, but you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. Okay, so so we shouldn't. And I, 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 I wasn't judging it based on girls. I was judging it based on the fact that there were there's very few narratives about women of color living in new, in a major city and what their lives are like, which is both about you know, their love lives, their work lives, and there's also the, just the component of being, the very specific component of being women of color. Right. The other thing that I resent about the conversation about the show is the television aspect. Cause, mm-hmm. and, and again, I understand where it's coming from. And I think every review that I've, I haven't read reviews for the show yet. Yeah, same. But I've read headlines of reviews and they're all about like, I wish Blacks was a TV show and mm-hmm. I wish I could bench this. And yeah, again, I understand where that's coming from because it feels very episodic. It actually made me think more of a Spike Lee movie than it made me think of television because of the sense, this, because of the sense of space that Aziza Barnes uh, evokes. But what I love precisely about Blacks is that it was theater, and you know there was call and response. It was one of the liveliest audiences that I've ever sat. with in New York like people would not shut up and I loved it so much and you could see what that was doing to the actors on stage and you don't get that on television and there's also something about the way in which the playwright uses silence there are many scenes that feel you know not lacking because they're not lacking but we are so used to television that we're like, why aren't people talking? Like, why aren't they, why aren't they saying anything right now? And she does so much with silence. Like, think about that scene. I don't remember the character's name when she's in her wedding gown playing video games mm-hmm. and she's just by herself. And there's another character behind her in the window trying to enter her house. And without any dialogue, that scene was one of the most magical moments in the entire play. And I wonder, again, maybe we all have been just so brainwashed by Netflix and by HBO and by the white, you know, by whiteness that maybe we just all need to go to like a camp, like a summer camp and de-white ourselves so we don't have to compare things to white things. At the same time, though, if if the comparison calls for it, because I think this does call for it, it feels more like a TV show in the fact that and there's a moment in the beginning where two characters are in the bathroom really quickly, and then they're back in the living room, and the set turns on a turntable for those two seconds. The thing is, like, if this was a TV show, it would be a simple cut. But because it's a stage, you need to have the stage turn, or you need somewhere to, to direct the audience's attention but if I was a drama, if I was like directing the show, I would just say, just cut those two lines in the bathroom. You don't need it. 
And so it's like I, I think of something that's tel- made more made for television as something that's like episodic that uses a lot of sets for seemingly unnecessary reasons. And that's not saying the play is the play is bad. It's it's a great piece of work. I just it I feel like it just needed time to breathe more with the ideas because it it feels like one of those you know those films like The Hangover where a lot of stuff happens in one night and but made for the stage and I'm just thinking but why is this trope which is a very much a filmic television trope why is this being put on stage what is the purpose of it in those moments where you were distracted by the turning set those moments made me think a lot about specifically about Japanese theater and about Japanese cinema where those transitions where nothing's happening because we are not used to not there's, there's things not happening like it stresses out and it's normal in those moments when those transitions are happening those are the moments where the playwright is saying breathe catch your breath like you laughed like my stomach hurt from laughing at that play mm-hmm. and it was during those moments where i heard people behind me i heard people all around me you know, comment on the show. And those spaces that some people feel are like editing cuts gone too long were the spaces where people were allowed to be with the show and to be in conversation with the show. So I will disagree with you. And I think Blacks is extremely theatrical. That is fine. We can disagree because we're friends. Um, and and I'm th- and my also question because we're people. <laughs> and because we're people. And I'm wondering for you, just to veer off into another part. I yes, it's it's com- It's a comedy about you know, f- like being a modern young woman and decisions you have to make and the compromises you have to make in relationships and career and love and all of those things. And I don't know what I was supposed to... What did you leave the play with? I had a great time with people I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. And that's all I... I didn't know I needed that, but that's what it gave me. And that's what I what i needed i think okay yeah because that's that's basically what i got which is like these are very enjoyable people to spend some time with yeah i mean what what did you what do you want from theater when you go to theater do you want lessons do you want like existential like dilemmas to go home and think about i think i'm just not used to having just a regular good uncomplicated good time Hmm. well thank you aziza for that moment yeah exactly and and thank you uh who who designed the set cuz i actually wanted to say something did, about did robert direct this show robert o'hara did yeah. direct the show he knows how to use a turntable though not very many people do okay oh and thank you clint ramos who we interviewed last year when he did once on this island because clint has g- gave me the most realistic representation of a new york apartment I have ever seen on stage and on television because it was to scale, which never happens. Yep. Blast is currently running at MCC Theater through June 2nd, and tickets are $35 to $95. We know it's only running until Sunday, so you all probably won't get to see it, but it'll be produced. It's already been produced in D.C., so it'll get produced. So if it comes to your town, check it out. 
Fingers crossed.、Mm-hmm. And our last show for today is continuity at City Center. It's a Manhattan Theater Club production. This is the new play by Bess Wall, directed、mm-hmm. by Rachel Chapkin, and it takes place on a single day in a movie set in the desert, where they're shooting a global warming echo thriller. <laughs> So you, the first thing you see when you enter the theater is like a piece of like a glacier, and it's obviously fake, but you don't know it's fake until you see a scene from the movie, and the director yells "cut." <laughs> That so much happens in a single day reminded me. Have you ever been in a movie set? No, I've never been in a movie set. One of the one of the things that's so strange about a movie set is. How slow everything is, and this play captured that perfectly. Everything, every little decision, takes forever. Obviously, because it's in the title, continuity is very important to the characters that we meet. And we have this director,、uh, Maria, who's played by Rosal Colon. This is her first big movie, and she's just having the worst time of her life. And if you have, you know, if you know. The tropes of this kind of thing, where it's the director trying to manage everything. We've seen it in plays like *Noises Off*, for instance. And basically, every piece of art made about the making of a piece of art is about how fucking horrible it is to make art. <laughs> and in the case of this play, the art they're making is questionable to the characters from the get-go. So it gets there's you know nothing happens, but a lot happens, and the actors. Get into fights. People are sleeping with each other. People learn that other people are, you know, sick.、Uh, there's a science consultant who's very alarmist, according to some of the people. But actually, we as the audience end up learning a lot about not only filmmaking, but also about global warming and water. Did you all know that ice refracts heat, but water soaks up heat? What? Thank you, Bess Wall. Thank you for teaching us science because us not knowing science is why we're all gonna die in twelve years.、Um, and what I really loved—it was one of those things where it came up in my head as I was watching it, and then they addressed it. Which was artists love to make like socially conscious art because they think like, oh, if people watch my art, then they want to do something. And then there's this moment in the play where the scientist basically says, "People, wa- you you'll you'll make it, and then people will watch it, and then they think that's all they have to do, and they and they won't do anything else." And I really loved that best kind of called out artists who like serve themselves by making. The, this kind of work and telling themselves that they're doing something important, and it's a lot. The reality is a lot more complicated than that. Even if the play itself is an example of that, which is even yep,、yeah. <laughs> layers, yeah, layers. The only question I have, though, like I did touch the the snow on the stage at the end at the end of the show, and it was made, it was made out of plastic. And there's a line that says, "The snow is made out of plastic." Like, is this even an Ecologically sound set, and then I thought about it, and I'm like, "Wait, Rachel and Bess, like, what are you gonna do with all this plastic? Like, how did you? Is is this a carbon neutral set? Like, what did you do? How are you doing this? 
at the center of the play, I love the fact that you can feel the playwright and probably to some degree the director, you know, playing with that and and wondering. Like, I felt there were moments when I felt like, you know, like that movie adaptation where like things are being written and there's a writer in the play and it's the books, you know, his script is based on a book. And anyway, I, 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 am, I almost imagined Best Wall like from like the sky with like puppet strings trying to move everything and saying, wait, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? And the play does this really wonderful work when it, you know, it does that. It doesn't have any answers for us, but it invites us to meet people and it reminds us of you know humanity and others while also commenting on gender disparity in the film industry and sexism and me too but she never does that in an obvious way like it's not a message play it's a very existential play but it's also a message play it's I don't know. It's just like this little wonder of a play that I, I wish I had known. No, I'm glad I didn't know what it was about before I went to see it. Cause I never do read synopsis or whatever, mm-hmm. but I wish people knew what the play is about. Cause it's also very entertaining. Yeah. Like you expect, Oh, climate change play. Jose just shot himself in the head. He's he's done for the day, folks. No, because that's what you think when you hear about, like, <laughs> you know, like, there's nothing that I dislike more than being taught stuff through art. And when the artists feel like it's their job to teach people something, that just makes me want to, I would just go to school. Yeah. If that was the case. Oh, and someone please tell me what you're doing with all that plastic at the end of the show, at the end of the show's run. It'll make me feel a lot better. Or be more stressed when they tell you, oh, we're just tossing it somewhere. Uh, but the poor fish. But I love Things that. Someone think about the fish. I mean, I don't love the fish dying, but I love that. That, <laughs> that the play reminds us that we don't, we don't have a lot of control over anything. And I love that line where someone, where someone says, like, isn't recycling helpful? And, and the scientist is like, if it makes you feel better, but not really. No. What's helpful is refrigeration management. Yes. Which I, I went home and looked up. So thank you, Bess, for entertaining us and teaching us something. Uh, Continuity is running until June 9th, and tickets are only $35, which is a steal considering that you'll get to see a Rachel Chafkin production that is actually affordable. And, and it's great if you can't get into Town. Next up, we went to the Greenwich House Theater because Underground Railroad Game is back. And we are so excited. It's one of the best plays I have ever seen. And the fact that it's back three years after it premiered in New York kind of feels like it kind of feels like they're like the Mary Poppins of theater. They're coming back to rescue us from the horrible stuff that we've been living through. But anyway... We went to the Greenwich House Theater to talk to Scott Shepard and Jennifer Kidwell, the creators and performers of the piece. And a fun fact, everybody, Jen and Scott are both uh, co-leaders of Lightning Rod Special, that Philadelphia-based theater company that also did a comedy about abortion. We interviewed Alice York like three episodes ago, so check that out and check them out if they ever come to your town so let's go 
Listen to that. And now a word from our sponsor. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats, great views of the stage, a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out onto the sidewalk. I've encountered that way too many times, and that is why I no longer drink before shows. But in truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge, but Charcoal Blue—that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad, over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new performing arts center at the World Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. Huh? I wonder if I can get them to design a studio for Token Theater Friends. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them at Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. Thank you so much for joining us. You're bringing back the show that we both love so much. But for the people who have no idea what it is, can you describe what Underground Railroad Game is?、Uh, it's a two-person show that、um, centers around a lesson. Um, about um, the Underground Railroad,、um, so that there's two teachers who are teaching a Civil War thematic unit in their middle school in Hanover, Pennsylvania, which is where Scott grew up.、Um, mm-hmm. And so, in order to teach this lesson, they have、uh, created this game、um, for the students to play. And the, the game, as we lay it out in the piece, is the a game that Scott played. As a student that his teachers created for him to play as a student in Hanover School in the nineties, and but the, the piece sort of moves from、um, moments in history or reenactments, historical reenactments, to the present day and what is happening between these two teachers. I feel like Underground Railroad game. It, people have a difficult time. Deciding whether or not it's a play or a, a performance or a,、um, a piece of theater because it doesn't follow it, it. It sometimes seems to follow some traditional playwriting、uh, patterns or a, a kind of narrative arc, but actually it often doesn't. It's kind of structured like、um, Russian dolls. So you're kind of diving、mm-hmm. deeper into something or or through something, and that something is. Uh, the psyche of these two characters, the psyche of America, the layers of representation of our history, and the kind of the failure to represent that history, and the failure to represent how we represent that history.、Um, so yeah, it kind of cascades into moments of、uh, surreal action, moments of、uh, deep artifice. Artifice, and then、um, also kind of like these moments of theatricalized fiction, where you're in a school. These two teachers are teaching a, a group of students 
the audience uh, being cast as those students <laughs> at different yeah. times. I didn't want to say that because usually you told me not to say that. But I just realized, too, yes, and it's a series of performances that deal with the way that we narrativize history. And so that's why it's hard to describe because uh, it's like very in a very slippery way, a kind of meta-theatrical piece. It's like mm-hmm. looking at how we choose to perform the present and looking at how we choose to perform the past and how that choice then actually um, exposes um, what is really happening between people. Scott, it was inspired by the game you played Mm -hmm. in middle school. And so how did you come to Jen saying, hey, I want to do this really uncomfortable thing? Well, it was... there. In my history, in my you know past uh, as a student, I went through this phase where in my middle school where we were studying history, and in my uh, town, there's a popular reenactment culture because there, civil war is caught up in a kind of tourism industry. Mm-hmm. People going and traveling to see where the battles are. So there's this very um, on one hand, there's this kind of love of history. There are lots of history buffs who know all the facts and there's a kind of romanticism that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a really interesting uh, way of looking at America's kind of inability to grapple with its own uh, horrifying, troubled, complicated past because at once you're kind of wedded to it and there's a, an attraction to know about it and understand it. And on the other hand, there's an inability to face it. And there's a kind of, we are repelled from wanting to look at mm-hmm. it. And I, and I think the way that I presented it to Jen was in the context of school. We were studying um, this very specific kind this of... This is the story that I do remember. <laughs> well, I would, I'm going to tell my own video. <laughs> but we were studying uh, Buffon... Uh, which is this kind of clown. <laughs> Buffon delves in like deep tragedy and, and comedy at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, and so out of that unit and studying that kind of work, we were interested in the, the, the possibility of creating a satire about it and, and what a satire could accomplish. Mm-hmm. And what is the... Yeah, what, what, what can comedy uh, achieve or what kind of uh, doors can comedy unlock for our, you know, self-awareness or as we start to kind of like grapple with these really tricky issues around history. So we, we kind of dove into an exploration around these, this circumstance thinking that it was going to be like ferociously... <laughs> Uh, funny and in a way that put the audience um, kind of on some kind of trial or at least not even that they were going to be on trial but we were just going to kind of uh, implicate them in some ways. You had told the the story about playing the game really late one night and I was just like this is crazy and then you were going to make a solo and then we were supposed to be making a dance piece and that was that didn't work yeah so you were like we should do this instead but i think this thing that you were saying about implicating the audience didn't really crack open for us until we went to go see a talk so then we you know decided to work on this thing we're doing research and we went to go see a talk at the portrait gallery um, which is a federally funded situation in Philadelphia. And this gentleman was giving a talk about the Underground Railroad, but was having kept stumbling over um, 
the enslaved people. So <laughs> he hadn't landed on how to describe black people. And that, I mean, that I think too is in this thing of like really, I mean, he's a historian and ostensibly it prepared to speak. <laughs> I love how I'm saying this now. <laughs> You're, like, You're like, so what's the show about? about? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, but I will speak about this federally funded historian who could not speak about enslavement without stumbling over his words. Um, that to us seemed really emblematic of this huge faux pas, this huge uh, problem in pedagogy in which teachers would think it was a good idea to have dolls meant to represent people in order to teach about objectification. So th th his inability to, to deal with the past, even though that was literally his job, his federally funded job, mm -hmm. um, became like a launching point for, mm -hmm. oh, that's, that's, that's what can happen to people who, um, and I, th I think it's just, it's hard to be honest, right? That's what Jennifer, I, I, I read in an interview that you, uh, when you were a teenager, you played the violin. I did. Do you want to hear a very exciting story? Yes, please. I think that I played the violin in this building when I was 13. <gasps> Whoa. Wow. It's homecoming then. <laughs> a right? little bit. But, and, 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 <laughs> and you said that you quit playing the violin because of anxiety during performances. And yet here you are, a theater artist. So what did you find in, in theater that, you know, play classical <laughs> <laughs> music? My moms are sweating now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I, the anxiety has not subsided. I mean, it's like different. And, you know, like when, when you're playing the violin, like if you're shaking, then it, you know, you, you can't play. And so I can be shaky now and still perform. But the anxiety has stayed with me. It's a little different now, and I, you know, I see it coming, but there's no, <laughs> and in fact, um, I'm looking to pick the violin back up now that I'm like, oh, I'm just like, I just get stage fright, and there's a part of me that doesn't really like people watching me, and then another part of me that really likes people watching me. So you've all performed the show all over the world, and how race relations are different and so how have the different audiences reacted to it? And have you found that there is a so something that universal that translates and other things that don't? Mm -hmm. The show takes a lot of things for granted, takes some points of view for granted. And in communities where that assumption isn't held or isn't a safe assumption, the show can cause some real distress. Uh, we definitely took the show to one community and somebody, we did a talk back and somebody during the talk back said, what are the ethics of traumatizing your audience? And we were like, this is not meant to be traumatic. Um, but when using humor as a device, um, because, I mean, I guess I've just been thinking about this a lot recently. What conditioning what conditions need to be met in order for something to be funny and in order for someone to be able to perform laughter publicly um those conditions just don't always exist and so when they don't um it's actually quite upsetting for people and quite a turn off the show i i would say one of the most um 
incredible responses was uh, this woman came up to us after seeing the show in D.C. And she told us that she had seen it initially in New York and really disliked it a lot. Um, and had had a lot of discussions about it afterwards with other people. And I think she was talking about a friend who also wasn't really into it. Um, but it stuck in her craw enough for her to come back and see it. Uh, so that would have been almost a year and a half later in DC. Mm-hmm. And she was so glad that she had, that she like took the time to stay after the show and come up to us and tell us that, uh, after the second time and, and the fact that it had stuck with her and she had been mulling it over that it, uh, her reaction to it was quite different. I got the sense in Australia that people were, uh, fans of America, but also were very aware of uh, all of our problems and have that kind of love hate relationship with our country that lots of people have. (laughs) Uh, but in Australia, there was something really amazing about, their access to our culture enough to kind of follow the piece. Maybe they wouldn't pick up every little, uh, you know, Easter egg that we would drop about American history or something, but they had enough access to the culture that they really followed the piece. But also they were able to kind of laugh, uh, at, um, America and the, the kind of faux pas and the mistakes we were making and those characters were making. Um, and it was just enough of a distance, from their own problems, but also it was a kind of analogous to and in correspondence with their own, that it was, I don't know, I felt like it was the right distance for them to kind of, by the end of the piece, be able to say, oh, and also us. You've talked about how, you know, this part of the Civil War is the part that most people feel comfortable talking about because it's about saving people, right? Mm. And... This is a very cliche question, but what are some of the most, I guess, disturbing things that you learned about, you know, the Underground Railroad during your research that you would love for people to realize? It wasn't just like magical, like, you know, like saving people and taking them to the north. What are some the most disturbing things? I mean, what's like something that, that shocked you, I guess, about your doing your research that you wish people knew? Well, I think the biggest thing is that it wasn't a codified system. So, like, nobody that was participating in that, uh, you know, what in some senses is a rebellion and other senses is, uh, you know, like, the way for people to be. It wasn't, like, it wasn't a, there was no map. Right. Uh, it, it wasn't codified. It wasn't a club. I mean, we always capitalize the letters, right? As Mm -hmm. though it's a proper noun. You open a textbook, you start reading about enslavement, and then in the very next page, it's like, but the Underground Railroad. And it's like, "Mm -mm." that wasn't like, yeah, like brave people who were like largely unrecognized and there's no map laid out Mm -hmm. for you. Um, uh, Here's something that makes me really upset (laughs) that keeps happening. The NPR just reported. Harriet Tubman was not freed. Harriet Tubman freed herself. That's something that I would like for everybody to remember. Yeah. I didn't, I was not so keenly aware of how, when we are studying history, uh, we are studying marketing campaigns <laughs> that were created by groups of people to get their message out to achieve these ulterior motives, right? Like the, all, all of these kind of tropes and, and narratives that end up becoming movies that end up becoming fictions, uh, those 
those often misrepresent uh, a lot of the things that were happening by kind of turning one story or several parts of stories into uh, a, a, a kind of a, a campaign to, to achieve, to like a political campaign to make it seem like the South uh, wanted to separate from the North and that had very little to do with slavery uh, when actually the word comes up in like every, you know, when they're actually leaving, it, that, that word is like the most used word probably of all of them, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There, there, there are ways in which we're inheriting these um, prefabricated uh, notions. And, and so it's really hard to, to sift through those, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it makes me think, um, I feel like Sweet Honey in the Rock has a song called Would You Harbor Me? And I think it boils down to that. Like, at a time when the population, when the you know, the the borders that delineated what we now call the United States of America. Um, at that time, the population within those lines, then just the amount of people was smaller. And so there was a way um, that people could create networks to, to help. Mm-hmm. Um, that oftentimes it boiled down to like, oh, you like you, you can stay here for the night. I'm, I won't tell anybody as opposed to like, uh, you know, we're not going to see like portraits in a gallery of like this person, this person. These were the conductors. It wasn't so much of that. And I guess the question for us now is like, how can we offer that same um, justice mm-hmm. to people who need it? You know, like is there a way that we can offer like shelter and refuge to people who are being turned away at our borders right now? Yeah. You know, like work outside of the law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where is the plate going after uh, Greenwich house? We don't know yet. Not sure. Can you please send in like everyone? <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want these two in your town. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're not sure. We're, you know, there are, there are discussions and there are places that are interested in the piece, but... Um, we're hoping we get to Canada. This week, I will finally turn in my application for the Drama Desk Votership, so I'll have one more credit to add to my credits. Friday is the last day. I know. It's so expensive, Jose. Do you like... You, people, do you, do you know that it costs $150 a year to be a Drama Desk voter? But all memberships for every group cost something. I just I just thought people did it because they love the art form. How do you uh-huh. think people fund events and awards and all of that? Like, Corporations? Aren't you a member of other journalist associations? I am a member of journalist associations, but I get like the per- the perks I get from that are usually, you know, pretty good because it, it's networking. But this is just like I feel like I'm doing people a favor. You think too highly of yourself. I do think too highly of myself. Okay, is it just me, Jose, or are there a shit ton of awards. Why are there so many different kinds of 
awards. Why are you asking me? I don't, I don't know why you, they create them. Because you adjudicate one, like one of them. Well, I mean, the Tony Awards are an industry award. So the industry, every industry has their own award. It's like the Oscars and the Grammys and the Emmys and blah, blah, blah. And then there's always, historically, critics have always handed out awards. So if you think about it, there's actually not that many awards for theater because we have the Lortels, the Drama Desk Award, the uh, Outer Critics Circle, and... The, the New York Drama Critics Circle, which is different from the Outer Critics Circle. Yeah. And then the Drama League. And Obies. And the Obies. Yeah, but each and of the them... Theater World Awards. But each of them does something different. Like the Theater World Awards recognize people who are making their debuts, and none of the other bodies do that. Then the Obies recognize off-Broadway excellence, mm. but they don't have specific categories, so it's very whimsical then the outer critics i don't know what the hell they do and then the drama desk recognizes broadway and off broadway and off off broadway so they're doing like you would if you think there's a lot of theater awards you would go nuts with the movie awards how have you been finding the um winners so far mm-hmm. predictable as usual yeah, why is that? Because I and I tweeted out how I was really just disappointed that none of them have been given giving best play to what the Constitution means to me by Heidi Shrek. They've been picking the Ferryman instead, which you know both of those plays are on contender this year for best new play at the Tonys, and so far the the one that's been getting it is the more traditional, you know, quote-unquote Broadway play. And the same has been the case for them choosing numerous awards, choosing Kiss Me Kate as Best Revival instead of Oklahoma. And Jose tweeted that one out. So I'm just wondering, there's experimentation, but why is experimentation not getting rewarded? Well, with the revival, there's... Kiss Me Kate has only won one, and the others have been won by Fiddler on the Roof, which we also reviewed mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. and then by Carmen Jones, which we also reviewed. And those are all really wonderful productions. So I'm not I'm not necessarily angry, but you used the word disappointed, and I think one of the things that make award season bearable is having no expectations and mm-hmm. not being disappointed because you know how people vote and you know what people like and there are two as a big awards freak because i do love awards and mm-hmm. tell me more about them i love them so much and but one of the things that i learned from a very early age was that well first of all we know that the bodies themselves the groups of people mm-hmm. who vote for the awards they're usually different from the nominating people. So, yeah, yeah. Again, like we are encountering what happens with the Academy and the Oscars every year, where an overwhelming white majority ends up picking regressive, often racist, sexist works over experimental stuff. I mean, we saw it in the country. Like, you look at what happened Green when. Green Book. Yeah, but we, we look at what happened when people had to vote between progress and a racist. Are you comparing the 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 awards voters to the disenfranchised white people in the middle of the country? 
because they have that illusion. Okay. You know, they're older white people who are seeing that the country is moving and the world is changing and they just don't want it to change. So, of course, if you give them the options between, you know, an Oklahoma that has blood and shows that all these people are fucking perverts and murderers or the choice of something lovely like Fiddler, which is lovely. And there's no, it's a great production and there's dark things that happen in it, but it's, you know, a traditional production. Yeah. It's not reinventing the wheel. So if you give this old people, you know, those choices, what do you think they're going to choose? Like, Mm -hmm. it's not really mind boggling. It's like, okay, yeah, of course they're going to vote for that. And the same when you give them what the constitution means to me, and the ferryman, which again, but also the other part besides the voters and how messed up they are, and that's why, you know, when you asked at the beginning of the thing, you know, why are you joining the drama desk? Potentially, it's because you want change in the world. It's not because you're doing anyone a favor or anyone's, you know, begging you to do it, but because. Y- you're going to complain about this every year unless you do something about it. Mm-hmm. So since you're an insider, Jose, and I've not, and, and this is my first year trying to complete the Drama Desk Award voter application, but how can other people who aren't in the know, how, how do people become voters to any of these things? Oh, my God. They have such mysterious, like, yeah, just hit me up on Twitter. I I don't even know how to explain because it's very, because again, it's, you know, all these clubs are very selective and it's again, all these older white people and they don't necessarily want people like us to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Like, so they make everything so difficult. Like I, I've told you this story before and I don't mind sharing it with our listeners that there's, uh, I used to know an older white critic and he's a member of one of the groups that I wanted to belong to. And I asked him year after year after year, how can I apply? And he would always tell me, you're not ready for this and you're not ready for this. And they don't want us. And I've, you know, come to terms with that and I'm okay with that, which is why once I'm in there i'm just trying to bring more people along with me because we need to change this but the other thing that i wanted to say about my strategy for not really caring about awards that much while still enjoying them is that at the end of the day they're always going to be apples and oranges like there's no such thing as the best of anything do you think there is no, it's it's all a matter of taste. It's just very emblematic of everything that we complain about in this industry when the things that get rewarded are the ones that don't take as much risk artistically. Well, that's the problem that all these yeah. people who are voting, they think that they're being objective and they do. That's like the sad part about that. Yeah, that yeah. They think they're voting for they the just- best. Yeah, they just like traditional, and that's why it's important to have like different kinds of people voting who have different tastes. The problem is it seems like no one knows how you become a voter, and it doesn't seem like these organizations are open to like diversifying their voting pool. They're not, but find me on Twitter, and I will give you more pointers on that. Yes, because apparently, like, if, if you're like a... Th- a theater critic, there are organizations that you can vote for, like the New York Drama Critics or the Outer Critics or the Drama Desk. And I think, like, the Lortels and the Obies are adjudicated by 
artistic I, professionals. You get invited to be a voter okay. and a nominator. All right. So if you identify as either of those things, you know where to go. Just and ask Jose for the rest. And have fun. Enjoy the Tonys. Thank you all for listening. And remember to subscribe to us and leave a review and rating so people can find us. Um, if you're interested in watching the video of our interview today with Jennifer Kidwell and Scott Shepard, you can go to Token Theater Friends on YouTube. Um, is there anything else you want to say to the people? Stay inside in the AC because it's too hot. It's mm-hmm. too darn hot. It's too darn hot. We can't do anything else but jump <laughs> 10 times in a row. All right. And remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend. Bye. Bye.